0: Many of us that will leave this place will not have that uh, good fortune, but uh, we're grateful to be connected to all of you. And so I want to say a special word of thanks to Larry Trotter uh, for teaching us what it means to be a pastor and to helping us understand how the word is to be rightly, humbly, winsomely, graciously, yet firmly preached uh, and seeing that behind the the closed doors as well. And I want to offer a special word of thanks to uh, Jeff Doyle uh, many of you may, may not know, but uh, he is the working cog behind these church plants. He is our connection, and uh, I want to say in front of all of you that uh, uh, you are to be grateful for such a, a fine group of elders, but specifically in Larry Trotter and Jeff Doyle, how they have uh, just loved us so much. Uh, we, are, we feel very shepherded uh, in this crazy jump in life, so uh, we're thankful. Uh, and so... My task this morning is to continue this series uh, in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. And before I do, let me share with you a little story that um, had happened to us just last weekend. We actually went up to D.C. to look for a place to live. We're not, we're not homeless because we haven't tried, uh, but uh, we went up to D.C., and, and when we were driving up there, we actually uh, we had contacted an agent just to show us a couple places to live, and, uh, we really, the, the, my, I had mapped it out. I had all the stuff in the folder, you know, map it out. And, and uh, uh, we were going to have this agent show us a couple places to live. And then we were going to kind of go do our own thing. And, um, well, we, sh- when we got there, her name was Arisia and Arisia showed us those couples of property and, and she started laying out, you know, all these other places we could go and see. And so I looked at Indy and I was like, oh, I guess we're stuck with her all day and tomorrow. And, um, so we did, and by God's grace, we were so thankful to have had that opportunity. Orissia was great. I mean, she was fantastic. Uh, she really helped us a great deal, and, and uh, one of the places we went into was right across the street from the National Cathedral, big, huge, pretty, sort of Episcopalian kind of looking building, and, and uh, kind of, I guess, a famous place, I don't know, maybe you guys never heard of it, uh, but we were walking out of this apartment, and we, when we walk outside, there's... Uh, right when we walk out, right across the street, is this big synagogue and on the side of it, it had all this, all these Hebrew words on there. And, um, uh, so I tried to try to, you know, I had a year Hebrew, so I'm trying to work it out and trying to get a couple words and trying to, and, and, uh, Arisia looks at me and says, why do you know Hebrew? And I said, well, you know, it was kind of a open door, right? Just kind of walk right in. And I said, well, you know, I go to seminary. She knew that we were starting a church in the city and, um, So I told her that we'd been trained in Hebrew, that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek, and and, uh, that sort of thing. And then she asked the question, she said, well, what kind of church will you be? Another open door. (laughs) Rocked right in. And so I started to tell her about Jesus, and I started to tell her about what Jesus had done, and how he had died for our sins, and how he said that he was going to build a church, and the gates of hell weren't going to prevail against it. Uh, and that we would, we would try to honor God with our church. And kind of said a little bit more than that, obviously. Uh, but uh, she kind of said, oh, okay, you know. And I said, well, Irvisi, what about you? Uh, do, do you have faith? Do you, do you uh, go to church or anything like that? And, and her response was, well, no. Uh, she said that I used to, but I went to this place, and it was, you know, all the people in the church, they just did, said one thing, and then they would do another thing the rest of the week. She said, they were all a bunch of hypocrites. So I, got, I said, the heck with it. And I just, no, I don't go anymore. So I was like, okay. So I replied back to her and I said, well, we want to raise up a church that will not be that. Um, because isn't, isn't that charge? Isn't that often the charge? You guys have heard this before, right? That the church is full of hypocrites and that sort of thing. Matter of a Lifeway research study actually said that they pulled a bunch of non-believers and these non-believers, more than 70% of them said that they thought that the church was just a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, it's kind of a common charge made against us. Well, I responded to Orissa and I told her that. I said, I wanna, we want to raise up a church that's not that. So that when people sin, that's not okay. Because it doesn't honor Christ. We want to call people to live holy lives all every day of the week. And really charge them to live in faithfulness for Christ because he's worth it. And the funny thing was, Arisia just kind of looked at me like I had three heads. What is that? I've never heard. She literally, she's like, huh. It's interesting. And then the phone rang, just like that phone rang. Uh, (laughs) Good. See, the Lord, we're working. You are working through me. Set up the illustration. It was great. So, but but that is, that's essentially the charge, isn't it? I mean, most people would look at the church and they think that we're just a bunch of hypocrites. And in some sense, They're right, right? I mean, has anybody not sinned today? Anybody? Raise your hands. Okay. Yeah, I didn't think so. So in some sense, there's some accuracy in that. but, But here's the thing. And when I go to preach this sermon here and we look at this text, you have to understand what Jesus is after is truthfulness. And I want you to know from the very beginning, I have not arrived in this. Just like you have likely not arrived in this. But we're pursuing truthfulness. We're pursuing it. And so we want to say that to a, to a lost world that looks at the church and thinks we're all a bunch of hypocrites, that yeah, we're not okay with our lack of truthfulness, but we are pursuing it rightly. Because people like Orissia will begin to see churches that are actually doing that well, and then they will actually begin to have that response that's more accurate in saying, hmm, I want to be part of something like that. So that's the background. That's, the, that's essentially the uh, uh, the message by which we're going to go after this morning is, is confronting truthfulness. That's what Jesus is doing. And, and let me back up just for a moment before we read the text and, uh, and give you a little bit of background as to where we are in this portion of the text. Now, you'll have to understand that the Old Testament has pointed to this Messiah, right? This Old Testament is constantly talking about this Messiah that was going to come, and this Messiah was going to come, and he's going to set up this kingdom. This Messiah was going to save sinners, and he was going to set up a kingdom, and this kingdom was going to be, uh, as he says, as he prayed, on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what Jesus keeps preaching about, right? When you go read the Gospels, he keeps talking about this kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, over and over again. You know, some of you are going, come on, Jesus, can we get on to something else? I mean, this kingdom stuff. You know, so he keeps talking about this kingdom. And what this kingdom is, is what Jesus is trying to do is paint for us a painting of the kingdom of God. A beautiful tapestry that the hearts of everyone that read it would look at it and say, that's beautiful. But within it, he confronts us who have defined sin in more narrow terms. Jesus is turning the table to broaden the scope of sin that we might see what the residents of the kingdom are to look like. And what we're finding is what we assumed was sin is actually much broader. So it's much like those cameras, maybe you've seen these, much like these cameras like this you see at the top of tall buildings. You've seen these before, I'm sure. Probably some of you looked through them. Anybody, anybody ever taken those cameras and spun them around and looked at them for the other end? Well, yes, that's right. When you, when you, when you do that, you, what you find, you see this little bitty, tiny, narrow thing. And Jesus is essentially taking, with the, with the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's trying to take that camera, swing it around, and let us see out of the right way. And when we do, what do we find? We look in that camera, and, we, and when we look out of the right end, we see this broader, bigger picture. And Jesus is painting this broader, bigger picture of our sin. That as I have heard said from people, someone sitting in this room, that our sin is far worse than we think it is. It's much bigger. It's much more difficult. So let's read our text, shall we? Matthew 5, verse 33 to 37. Jesus says, And again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, no oath at all. Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king nor shall you make an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black but let your yes but let your statement be yes yes or no no anything beyond these is evil so what jesus is addressing is this notion of that the pharisees and by extension us have tried to do for so long We've tried to take this uh, notion of sin and, again, look through that wrong side of the camera to try to whittle down sin to make it something that is manageable, something that is easy to work with so we can measure ourselves against it. You recall a few weeks back when Larry preached the sermon on loving your neighbor. You all remember that? And Jesus says in there "They love your neighbor as yourself. And what was the Pharisee's response? The Pharisee's response was, all right, exactly who is my neighbor? You know, is, is, it the, is it that guy, you know, because I'm, I'm assuming it's probably, it's probably the, you know, right, it's the white guy that's the same socioeconomic class as me, that thinks kind of like I do and lives on the other side of the country. Is that my neighbor? Because I, I, that'll be pretty easy to love him. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, no, everybody's your neighbor, even your enemy. See, the Pharisees, and, and what we often do, we try to whittle down that sin. We look through the wrong side of the camera. And you recall a couple weeks ago, Justin uh, preached a sermon earlier in this passage where he talked about murder. And we had, and the Pharisees had, whittled down the sin to make it more manageable. So when they thought about murder, they just said, well, murder is what you do when you kill somebody with a you know, knife or whatever the case may be. Well, I haven't done that, so I'm okay there. But no, Jesus, page, again, he puts that camera and helps us to see more broadly. He said, know that if you have uh, slandered your brother and gone unreconciled in that relationship, then you have committed murder. He gave it a more broader, bigger scope. And then last week, it's a funny story. Larry actually brought me into his uh, office a couple weeks ago, and he said, Nathan, Nathan, I got it messed up. You're supposed to preach last week's sermon. I said, oh, no, I'm not. Uh, But it was this sermon. We had it right. But but even in that passage, you see what Jesus has done, what? When people had thought about adultery, right, they thought about that's, that's the thing, that you're having sex with someone that's not your wife, someone that's not your husband. And, well, I haven't done that, so I'm okay. And again, sort of whittling down sin to make it manageable, to make it easy to understand, measure themselves against it so they're okay. And what does Jesus say? No. If you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery. So you see, Jesus keeps doing this. He keeps broadening out the scope. And that's exactly what he's done in this passage here. Understand that this passage is coming right out of the previous passage that we talked about last week. So there's something to be said for the yeses and the yeses and the noes and the noes as it relates to marriage. And so when we look at this passage, we begin to see that Jesus is after our truthfulness. He's broadening the scope by placing our eyes on that camera to help you see how big and ugly your sin is. That's what's going on here. But allow me to give a little bit of background uh, as to where the whole oath discussion comes from. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. See, what had been done is in the Old Testament they had said that you can make an oath, but you have to swear only by the name of God. Okay, so they figured, typical Pharisees and what we tend to do, they said, well, what we'll do then is we will then begin to swear by other things. We'll swear by other names. And if we do that, then I can break that oath and it'll be okay. Because if you do break this oath, like if you say, you know, as God is my witness, I shall do X, and you don't do it, well, you're swearing against, you're saying something about God that isn't true, right? You're saying that God is a liar. And that's not true. So what the Pharisees had done is they had said that we will begin to swear by other things. And, and, and it's, you know, it's unfortunate oftentimes that we like to throw the Pharisees under the bus because the reality is we do it too, right? So what they've done is they begin to say, all right, we'll swear by these other things. So when Jesus says here in the text, uh, "You shall," uh, th- but I say to you, make no oath at all either by heaven... For it is the throne of God. So they were trying to appeal to heaven, swear, make an oath on the name of heaven. For it is, uh, uh, or the earth, for it is a footstool of heaven. So they began to make oaths on things in the earth, inanimate objects in the earth, and said, Well, I'll swear by that. Or they swore by Jerusalem, they chose a city and said I'll swear by that. And so here's what would happen. They created this elaborate system where they could make oaths and not keep them, and then the judgment of God would not be upon them, or so they thought. And Jesus has helped them see in this passage that I that he is everywhere. He's everywhere. They can't escape God. And so these oaths, understand, were designed to do one very simple thing. They were designed to restrain lies and false promises. The goal of them was to induce people to tell the truth in order that they may see that they may be true to their word. And what they've done is tried to make sin more manageable. And what God is doing, what Jesus is doing in this passage, is he's helping you to see that it actually is much worse. You can't get away from God. And that's the context by which Jesus says, no more oaths, no more. And so maybe at this point of the message, you're beginning to wonder, well, I was in the military and I swore to defend my country. Or maybe you're married this morning and you said that I, you know, I swore I made a vow to love my wife till death do us part. Yes. Maybe some of you have, Been in the courtroom and you laid your hand on a Bible and you raised your right hand and you said, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me. Yeah. So you're going, uh oh, what do we do here? Well, you'll be comforted to know that God Himself used oaths. We find in Hebrews 6 that God confirmed His promise to Israel with an oath. We find in Genesis 9 that God swore to make no more floods. Matthew 26 himself, later in this very same passage, Jesus actually makes a vow himself at his trial. And even Paul in numerous places in the New Testament, he makes vows as well. And so maybe you're asking this morning, well, are the scriptures contradictory here? Well, no, they're not. Jesus is trying to drive into your heart to help you to see again that your sin is far worse than you think it is. Your truthfulness is far worse than you think it is. Man lives in a world of doubt among a world of doubters. God appeals to his own holiness to assure honesty and bring about faith. Though oaths from the beginning, like divorce, were never intended. The very existence of customs such as oaths and promises reveals human life is tainted by deception. Jesus says the family of God is an exception to this. In the kingdom, we should be so truthful, we don't need promises or vows. That's the heart of what's going on here. Jesus is after truthfulness. And he is painting a picture of God and your sin that is far bigger than you previously thought. And you can't escape from God. Isn't it the scriptures that says that the whole earth is full of his glory? You can't try to come up with systems that are going to try to evade him. You can't create systems that will dodge God and then try to get away with it. No, you can't even control the smallest of God's creation. The very hairs on your head, as is evidenced by my head. I don't have any hair. Rogaine doesn't work. I can't even control that. I can't even make it go from brown to white or whatever the case may be. Surely you can go out and buy some products, but you can't even do that. You can't escape the power of God, and God is after your truthfulness. That's exactly what he's after in this passage here. And so what are we to do? How are we to move forward in this? Well, I think as it relates to things in the public, things like courts and things of the like, God, as we have seen, has, him, uh, God himself swears sometimes to take an oath for doubting listeners. But here, here's the main point that I want to drive home, that uh, in, in this portion of the passage, but in private, tell the truth. Tell the truth. And what will happen is the need for oaths will disappear because they see your good works and they praise your Father who is in heaven. But there we find that there is a difficulty telling the truth, isn't there? This, this is hard for us, isn't it? And so it's a good question to ask at this point of the message, well, why is telling the truth so difficult? Well, I want to submit two reasons why I think this is the case. I think the first... Circumstance why telling the truth is so hard for us is because we are far too careless with our words. We're far too careless with our words. We often talk without thinking. Think of James chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, Consider what a great force is set ablaze by such a small fire. Or passages like Jeremiah 17 9, where he says, Forget That We forget that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We should be slow to speak, as James says. We should be slow to speak and quick to listen. And not speak so quickly. We Oftentimes we make commitments and we begin to judge far too quickly. For instance, some of you guys, you see a woman, your wife put on a dress and she says, Do I look fat in this? And you say, Yeah, it's not so bad. Uh, You spoke too quickly. (laughs) Spoke way too quickly. We should be slow to speak and quick to listen. Be careful with your thoughts. Be careful with the words in which you say. This is something that is very, very difficult for me. We are far too careless with our words. That's one of the reasons why telling the truth is such a challenge. But I think the second reason is probably much more impactful for us. We have difficulty telling the truth because telling hard truths are difficult. We have a fear of telling hard truths. Folks, I'm here to tell you this morning that it is cowardice to tell people what they want to hear, whether it's true or not. That's cowardice. We, what we often do, right, is we, we want to give people good news in person, and then we sort of want to sort of send the bad news with a memo on the back end. Right? That's what we, that's what we often do. That, that's, that's cowardice. Folks, I'm here to tell you this morning that's failed courage. Is what that is. That's, that's failed courage to not tell the hard truths. You think you're being nice, but it's actually quite cruel. It's quite cruel. Some of you, when you join Northwake Church, you heard about these things called small groups. And you heard that we did accountability and we break up into guys and girls and we begin to ask each other hard questions. And you say, man, those guys take it seriously. Yes. And it's hard. I've sat in small groups where I've been asked questions and had to give answers that weren't very easy. But because my brothers loved me, they asked me those questions. You you can't escape this. If you are to walk in faithfulness with Christ, you must ask the hard questions and you must tell the hard truths. Fear of telling hard truths. Let me illustrate this for us. Imagine a, a doctor woman's having all these headaches, and she walks into the doctor's office, and she says, I've been having these headaches, and and so they really are really bothering me, and so the doctor takes him, does does her uh, CT scan on her brain, and comes back, and they find that she has brain cancer, and she's only going to live a couple weeks, and the woman comes back to the doctor, sees the doctor, and the doctor begins to talk to her, and says to her, well, uh, okay, I got good news for you, a couple weeks from now, you won't feel the headaches, and he lets her walk out, He did not serve her. He didn't tell her the hard truth. He didn't love her. And folks, I'm here to tell you, if we don't do the same thing, then we are not walking in faithfulness to Christ and we are therefore not serving our brothers and sisters well. We need to, Daniel Doriani says it so well, he says we need to revalue the word spoken in the same way we value the word written. It's a beautiful truth. And let me say that again. We need to revalue the word spoken in the same way that we value the word written. We often, we violate words to the powerless, like our children. We'll, we say to them, well, I'll, I'll play with you tomorrow. But then we often try harder to, to to keep our vows with people that are more powerful, like our boss. That's out, of, that's out of kilter. We need to keep them both. We break commitments that don't seem as personally satisfying. Like we say, you know... We, I'm not going to go to small group. I'm not going to do study-serve. Yeah, I know that when I went to the new membership class, I agreed that I'd do the whole study-serve thing, but, man, children are in too much trouble. I'm just going to not do it. We often break commitments that don't seem as personally satisfying, but then we are quick to keep the, uh, uh, the oaths that uh, seem to be much more gratifying. Going to the movies with your buddies, going to the ball game, hanging out. We're much more quick to keep those. And no, we have to keep those hard truths. We have to be truthful in all things. Oftentimes we exaggerate. We, we heighten pain to gain sympathy. We exaggerate how much we work to try and gain approval. We puff up accomplishments to make an impression. This, this is false. This is false. And I understand that at this point of the message you're beginning to say that, yes, you know, Nathan, I understand those things are true, but that's hard. And maybe you've been here for the last few weeks and you've been listening to this message about the Sermon on the Mount, and you're kind of walking through these passages, and you're beginning to see, man, this is hard. The, the whole lust thing, the, the murder thing, the you know, the whole, you know, being meek and and and, and pursuing righteousness and and all, man, this is difficult. You, you want me to be Truthful all the time. I I don't have to convince you of this this morning. I don't have to convince you that these things are difficult. Even in this very same passage, just look down a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 48. What do you find there? You see that Jesus says, therefore you are to be perfect. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) And you're going, now wait a minute, God. The standard is too high it's way too, you, you have put, I mean, I, perfect, perfection, truthful all the time, never lost, ever. Have you have you seen the world, God, that I live in? Have you watched the television shows? I mean, come on. God, you're setting the standard too high. And so maybe uh, as you have come here week after week and heard these scriptures preached, you're beginning to sit here and you're beginning to suffocate. You're saying, this is just too hard. Jesus wants us To see that we can't keep his truthfulness. We can't keep it. And and after hearing the standard that Jesus is calling. Again, you are probably just sitting there suffering. And Jesus wants you to see he knows you can't see it. He knows that you can't do it. And this is what drives us to the gospel, doesn't it? This is what drives us to the gospel. When Jesus is talking about this kingdom, he's trying to peer open, he's putting that camera up so you can see rightly, so you'll know that there is a solution, and his name is Jesus. We can't do it, but Christ can. You look in the text, John 14, 6, Jesus actually identifies himself as the embodiment of truth. He actually looks and says, you can't keep the truth? Well, guess what? I am truth. I'm the very embodiment of truth. And so what Jesus does is he teaches us to ask the one who gives us the standard to forgive for breaking it about that. He, Jesus asks us, he's, tell, he's teaching us to ask the one who gives that high standard that we can't eat, keep, and he teaches us to ask forgiveness for us for breaking it. He actually comes on our behalf. He tells us to ask the one who kept the standard, uh, it teaches us to ask the one who kept the standard to clothe us in his righteousness that should encourage you. So those of you that have been suffocating, hopefully you're beginning to grasp some air that Jesus has done it for you. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the picture of the kingdom that he is painting. This is the picture of a church. People that tell hard truths, that te- people that keep their commitments because Jesus has done it for them. Maybe you've heard this sermon preached before. And essentially, the point was: pull your bootstraps up and keep your commitments. Maybe even when you read this, you kind of thought that's where the angle I was going to come from. Yes, you should keep your commitments, but here's the reality: Jesus knows you can't keep them. Last time I preached up here, I, I preached on the book of Galatians, where Paul says in the book of Galatians, "Why was the law given to tutor you?" He said the word there: "to tutor you to Christ." Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that encouraging? And so... Those of us that put their trust in Christ, but they say, I can't do it, but Christ has done it for me. Those of us that do that, that turn from their sin, that begin to say, I can't do it. Christ, you have done it. You're the embodiment of truth. I need your help. I need your help, God, to do the right thing, to say the right thing, to make my commitments, to keep those commitments, to proclaim the beauties of your truth that makes this paints this picture of the kingdom of God and of his church that makes much of him and says a beautiful thing that a watching world looks at and says, wow. That's beautiful. And so what are the promises that you get to receive if you do that? We find in this very same passage, you will inherit the earth. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will gain perfection. Jesus here, uh, help. he wants you to see uh, that you have to find truthfulness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning to hear Jesus' call to truthfulness. Measure your words. Speak carefully so yes means yes. Let us describe events without distortions that mislead neighbors. Let us not claim to know what we do not know. Let us measure each promise. Our families, our churches, our communities will be stronger because of it. Lies, friends, brothers, sisters here this morning, hear me. Lies destroy trust. Telling the truth, that's what builds trust. God kept his promise to send a seed. He would be the son of Adam. He would be the son of David. He would be a mighty warder. He would be a prince of peace. And God was faithful to that promise and he sent his son Jesus. Jesus the Christ, faithful to the end, though it cost him much pain. Hear me. You're thinking this morning, Nathan, you're calling me to something that's difficult. I've got some things. I've got some truths I'm going to have to proclaim. I'm going to have to go to people and and go to bat. It's going to cost a lot. It's going to hurt. The psalmist says this Blessed is he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Will it be difficult? Yes to live in faithfulness with Christ, to call upon him, to live in accordance with him and be people that are truthful all times. There will come conversations, there will come circumstances where it will be very difficult and God is standing in front of you now and saying that you must respond. You must swear to your own hurt and not change. Yes, it will be difficult. But that's the beautiful thing of the gospel. God, Jesus says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. I kept the truth. I did it. So, you can lean upon me and know that I have done it. You too can do it with my strength. God tells us the truth about Himself. God tells us the truth about us. God tells us the truth about our relationship with Him. Oh, church, rise. Rise. Rise to truthfulness so when a watching world looks at you, they will stand in awe of the God that you serve. Be honest. Be truthful, not simply because it's the right thing to do, but because it makes much of Christ and know that he will provide the strength and courage that you need to do so. And I can assure us that if we can stand in the gap and live within the truths of the gospel, a watching world will take notice. It has to. This this is the church that we long to build in Washington, D.C. When we go, we understand that the bulk of the people that live in that city, when they hear about a church... They're going to think that we're a bunch of hypocrites. But what I am convinced of is that if we live in faithfulness to Christ and we speak the hard truths and we're slow to speak and we're quick to listen, what they're going to begin to see is that these people are something about them that's different. Just like Orissia looked at me and kind of looked at me with a strange look in her eye like she'd never heard of that before. What if this church was that for Wake Forest? And in many ways it already is but what if we begin to trumpet the truths of Christ and begin to live in truthfulness in all things? What would a watching world do? What would they think? Well, I think that it would look something like this. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following, the picture of the early church reads like this. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all people. Do you hear that? Praising God and having favor with all people. And why do I think they're having favor with all people? Because the watching world looks and sees that that is a beautiful thing. They know it instinctively. And the Lord, because of that, was adding to their number day by day. Truthfulness speaking the hard truths, being slow to speak and quick to listen, understanding that as we find in Matthew 5 that God's hand is upon everything. He's got his hands on it all. You can't try to play little games and come up with systems to try to get away from him. We need to live in faithfulness with Christ. So as the worship team comes, let me encourage you to respond. This is a time in which you have to respond. This is an opportunity for you to come and to pray and perhaps you have noticed that sometime in this message you've noticed that you've not lived up to this. Maybe you think a couple weeks back to when Justin preached that perhaps there was a time when you were not reconciled to a brother and you you cast aspersions against him and said wrong, untruthful things and you need to respond in truthfulness to that person. Maybe your heart is convicted this morning because you've not said things to your wife or to your husband, perhaps that you need, needed to have told them for some time. And you're wondering, I don't know if I can do this because it's going to be hard. Yes. But for, don't forget that Jesus has taken took, took a great deal of pain. You too can take it. You have a church body that loves you, that cares for you, that serves you, that wants to help you to walk in faithfulness so that a lost and dying world looks up at you and says, there's something different about those people.